This is Africa Digest. Good evening and welcome to Africa Digest. You're listening to Channel Africa, where we give you news from an African perspective. We're broadcasting to you from our studios in Johannesburg, South Africa, and unfortunately our shortwave transmitters are currently down, but we'll keep you posted and let you know when that situation has been rectified. We are still available online though on www.channelafrica.co.za. Uh, my name is Samora Mangesi and with me in studio, Amanda Machaka, Tracy Boomgod and Neto Chimani. Top stories on Africa Digest at this hour. South Africa's Independent Electoral Commission roundly dismisses objections uh, launched against candidates nominated to stand for the 2019 national and provincial elections. More than 175 million children globally are not enrolled in pre-primary education. In economics, Moody's rating agency indicates that prospective auto tariffs by the United States would be a risk to global growth. And lastly, in sport, Egyptian football side uh, Al Switch is up uh, the mind games by changing the venue of Saturday's CAF Champions League second leg quarterfinal tie against Mamelodi Sundowns. But first, let's find out what's happening in the news with Amanda. Thank you, Samora. Good evening. At least 35 people have been killed in fighting in Libya's capital, Tripoli. Military leader Khalifa Haftar pushed on with his assault on Tripoli on Monday, defying international calls for a ceasefire days into a battle that has left dozens dead. Haftar's forces launched an assault last Thursday. All rich Libya has been rocked by violence, uh, rather violent power struggles between an array of armed groups since the NATO-backed overthrow of long-term leader Muammar Gaddafi in 2011. Haftar, a former Gaddafi military chief, has emerged as a major player. His self-styled Libyan National Army backing an administration in the country's east in opposition to the UN-backed unity government based in Tripoli. The Nigerian Air Force has disclosed that it killed 25 armed bandits and neutralized more than a dozen in Zamfara State in an operation fire for fire against the armed bandits. According to a press statement by the Air Force spokesperson, Air Commodore Ibukunle Damarola, the operation was carried out by the Air Task Operation Tehran Mikia, noting that an armed bandits logistics base at Ajia was destroyed. The Air Commodore therefore appealed to members of the public to endeavor to report any suspicious movement of anybody and give the military useful information that would repel their mechanics. International Rights Group Human Rights Watch says it is worried about the Cameroonian government's continued muzzling of the dissenting voices, especially that of the opposition. HRW's concerns were primarily set around the recent banning of an assembly by the main opposition Cameroon Renaissance Movement. In a statement titled Cameroon Titans Cruise on Opposition, HRW bemoaned what it described as a crackdown on the Maurice Camto-led MRC's right to assemble and protest same. This statement came barely 24 hours to come to his next court appearance. The group cited a key instance where the Minister of Interior banned MRC demonstrations with the reason that it had destabilizing motives. 
Algerian lawmakers have gathered to confirm an interim replacement for Abdelaziz Bouteflika after the ailing president resigned last week in the face of massive protests. The constitution stipulates that the Speaker of the Upper House of Parliament, 77-year-old Abdelkader Ben Salah, take the presidential reins for the next 90 days. An editorial in pro-government daily, Al-Mujahid, has suggested that consensus has been reached in a candidate acceptable to both the state and the people. But the regime mouthpiece did not come up with any names. And finally, Zambian President Edgar Lungu has implored lawyers in the Commonwealth and the world at large to protect the rule of law by intervening in situations that threaten justice. He says lawyers have a special mandate to protect the liberties of society from abuse by those in authority. Over the next four days, the delegates will focus on the concept of the rule of law as contained in the legal framework of many other countries. President Lungu elaborate. This is my sincere hope that the deliberation that this conference will filter into institutions of governance within the Commonwealth and be positively impact decision making, policy implementation, transparency and accountability by those that govern and indeed by the government. For Channel Africa News, I'm Amanda Machaka. South Africa's Independent Electoral Commission says it has only upheld one objection out of the 52 objections launched against candidates nominated to stand for the 2019 national and provincial elections on May 8th. The electoral body decided in the interests of promoting fair elections to consider whether substantively these objections met the criteria in the Constitution. According to the Constitution, anyone who is convicted of an offence and sentenced to more than 12 months imprisonment without the option of a fine either in South Africa or outside the country if the offense would have been an offense if committed in South Africa. This disqualification ends five years after the sentence has been completed. In this case, member of the Pan-African Communist Party, Serupani Altensenyan Mpeti, uh, this candidate was sentenced on the 7th of June 2016 to 18 months imprisonment without the option of a fine. Tutongobeni compiled this report. The Independent Electoral Commission says it has adjudicated objections against candidates nominated to stand for the 2019 national and provincial elections. The commission received 52 written objections by the deadline on the 2nd of April and one which was received after the prescribed cut-off time. The objections were directed at candidates representing 10 parties, including the ruling African National Congress, with 29 objections. Chairperson at IEC, Glenn Machinini, explains. The ANC, 19 against candidates representing the BLF, 13 against candidates representing the EFF, 4 each against candidates uh, representing the DA and the Land Party, and 1 each against candidates representing the ACDP, the AIC, the ACM, and the ATA. Despite many of the objections not meeting the prescribed format for submissions, the Commission decided in the interest of promoting fair elections to consider whether substantively these allegations met the criteria in the Constitution and in Section 30, Subsection 1 of the Electoral Act. 
Section 30 provides for three grounds to object to a candidate. And these grounds are, one, the candidate is not fully, it's not qualified to stand for elections. Let me repeat that. The candidate is not qualified to stand for elections. The second one, there is no prescribed acceptance of nomination signed by that candidate. The third one, there is no prescribed undertaking signed by the candidate that they are bound by the code of conduct. In terms of section 47, sections 47 and 106 of the Constitution, every citizen who is qualified to vote for the National Assembly and or provincial legislature is eligible to stand except if, one, they are unrehabilitated insolvent, two, anyone declared to be of unsound mind by a court of the Republic, and three, anyone who is convicted of an offense and sentenced to more than 12 months imprisonment without the option of a fine, either in South Africa or outside of the country, if the offense would have been an offense if committed in South Africa. This disqualification ends five years after the sentence has been completed. Mashini says the commission only upheld one objection, that of the Pan-African Communist member who was arrested back in 2016. After deliberating, the commission resolved to uphold one objection by the PAC against uh, its own candidate, Mr. Sarupani Alten Senyani Mpeti. This candidate was sentenced on 7 June 2016 to 18 months imprisonment without the option of a fine. This disqualifies him from holding elected office to the National Assembly or Provincial Legislature. The Commission dismissed all other objections for failing to meet the constitutional and statutory criteria. The majority of these objections related to unproven allegations. The chairperson of the Electoral Commission clearly, when when considering this, um, said that uh, the Commission could only act within the the prescription of the law and the Constitution. And of course, that's really what the Commission has done. Anyone who is aggrieved by the IEC's decision has until the 11th of April to take the decision to the Electoral Court. We have written uh, to objectors and the political parties concerned to advise them of the outcome of this process. Uh, any objector, party or candidate aggrieved by the uh, decision of the Commission has until uh, 11 April 2019 to appeal this decision of the Commission to the Electoral Court. That's chairperson of the Independent Electoral Commission in South Africa, Glenn Mashinini, and for Channel Africa, I am Tutongo Beni in Johannesburg. Zambian President Edgar Lungu has implored lawyers in the Commonwealth and the world at large to protect the rule of law by intervening in situations uh, that threaten justice. He says lawyers have a special mandate to protect the liberties of society from abuse by those in authority. Hilda Kekelua from Livingston. Opening the 21st Commonwealth Law Association Conference this morning, he commended the choice of the theme, the rule of law in retreat, challenges to the modern Commonwealth, as one that is appropriate in the current environment where there are numerous problems affecting liberties of people. He said while lawyers must check that the rule of law is followed by those in authority, they should also take up the responsibility of explaining to citizens about their rights, as many may not be aware of what is available. It is my sincere hope 
and the deliberations at this conference will filter into institutions of governance within the Commonwealth and be positively impact decision making, policy implementation, transparency and accountability by those that govern and indeed by the government. Let me also state that the legal practitioners play an especially important role in the effectiveness of adherence and observance of the rule of law. They are not only the drafters of the law, the prompters of necessary revision, and the disseminators of legal knowledge, but also the educators of the rules at this time. By conduct to the observing community, they are the officers of the courts who must play a pivotal role in advocacy, not only the paying clientele, but to those who would otherwise be unable to represent themselves. In this regard, I'm delighted to note that there will be a session in the conference on pro bono legal services in the Commonwealth. And Law Association of Zambia President Eddie Mwitwa said in Zambia the supreme law of the country is the national constitution, but the several amendments made to the document in recent years have come as challenges to the rule of law. Part of the challenges that we have seen with uh, the rule of law is the fact that we had the constitution being amended in 2016. Uh, you will recall that for the very first time we're having the presidential petition being uh, anchored on the new provisions of uh, the amended constitution and one of the challenges that came from uh, that particular uh, petition was the issue of what does it mean uh, to have or hold the presidential petition in 14 days. It's a petition that started before the 14 days elapsed and uh, concluded on the 14th day without the trial. For us I think um, the new provisions in the Constitution have posed some challenges, especially on the political front, um, where there have been a number of court uh, cases that have, um, I, I think, been um, prompted by people asking themselves, what does this provision really mean? And for his part, the Commonwealth Law Association President, Santan Krishnan, said the rule of law is the bedrock of any democratic system world over and as such the association has over the years worked to support efforts made by member states to improve and strengthen their legal systems. He said common problems that seem to be affecting the rule of law in member states are numerous and varied but range from the effects of the climate change in one country to the independence of the judiciary in another. Climate change is an important issue. What are the developments post-Paris in order to ensure the climate does not change and ultimately helps for the betterment of society? We have corruption as a major issue, uh, troubling the Commonwealth countries, especially the underdeveloped countries across the Commonwealth. And the most important component, according to me, is to ensure independence of judiciary. Independence of judiciary is a very important component to preserve the rule of law in any commonwealth jurisdiction. 
Over the next four days, the delegates will focus on the concept of the rule of law as contained in legal frameworks of many countries. The conference has attracted more than 450 foreign delegates, among them the Commonwealth Secretary General Patricia Scotland and five Chief Justices, as well as 150 locals drawn from the legal fraternity, the academia and students. They will discuss and agree on issues surrounding the constitutional and human rights law, corporate and commercial law, judicial and legal, judicial and the legal profession, as well as current topics that hinge on the law, including the Brexit. Reporting for Channel Africa from Livingston in Zambia, I am Hilda Kekelwa. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. Kultranjoy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting-edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango, Channel Africa, Blantyre. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzeka. In Yawundi. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa. U.S. President Donald Trump paid a visit to his country's border with Mexico last week and repeated his threat to close official crossing points which separate the two countries. He's already used emergency powers to release a billion dollars from the U.S. defense budget to build a border wall. Uh, But many U.S. companies located close to the border are concerned about the impact on their businesses if Trump followed through on his tough words. The BBC's Sophie Long reports from the San Ysidro border crossing between California and Mexico. The San Ysidro border crossing is the busiest land entry port in the world. Closing it would have a massive impact on people living and working either side of it. Barry Sonen runs an electrical refurbishment factory in Tijuana in Mexico. He lives in Los Angeles in the United States. He crosses the border every day and his business is dependent on moving goods from one side to the other and then back again. It would be a disaster, okay? It would be as if we had a horrible earthquake. It would be as if the power supply went down to our plant. No difference. It's foolish. So we hope it doesn't happen, right? Same way I would hope to never have a power outage or an earthquake or horrific floods. But this is right up there with natural disasters. This is an unnatural disaster. How about that? But President Trump's supporters who lined the road his motorcade took from the airport say the disruption is a price worth paying. President Trump has said that he wants to close the border. People running businesses down there say it will cause chaos. What are your thoughts? There is already chaos at the border. And Congress is not doing their job. So since they are not taking action, something needs to be done to protect the borders and protect not just Americans, but the people that are being used, politicized, and that is our our illegal aliens that are coming across. We need to protect them too. Critics of the president's immigration policies say they do nothing to solve the problems causing people to leave their home countries. Buenos dias, 
¿Cuál es el de Chico? So we've just arrived at the Juventud 2000 shelter in Tijuana. It's one of many shelters that have sprung up in Tijuana alone. There are about 114 people here. Many of them are children, more than 50 children, who are all running around trying to make their own fun, playing hide-and-seek between the tents. Tents take up almost all the floor space in the shelter. It's got metal sides and a metal roof. And people are arriving here all the time, but they're leaving too. I'm told by the guy who's running this shelter that people wait here on average for about five or six weeks, but some have been here for much longer. Carmen Rivera's been here for three months. She tells me no wall, no border closure, nothing would have stopped her coming here. The gang in El Salvador gave her 24 hours to choose whether she would leave or die after she reported them to police. She chose life, but has been living in a tent in Tijuana and hasn't seen her children or sick mother since. She says she hopes President Trump will be more humane because she can only go home to die. And that report was by the BBC's Sophie Long from the border between Mexico and the United States. Cameroon says at least 40,000 Nigerians who crossed over to its territory thinking that presidential and senatorial elections in their country would end up in bloodshed have returned home. 20,000 others will be accompanied to the border when Cameroon is sure they will risk no attacks from the terrorist group Boko Haram. Moki Kinzeka reports from Makari on Cameroon's northern border with Nigeria. Cameroon troops whistle to indicate it is time for departure as about 3,000 Nigerians prepare to return to the village of Kukawa in Borno State. Midjiyawa Bakari, the governor of Cameroon's far north region, says about 60,000 Nigerians fled into Cameroon ahead of Nigeria's February elections, fearing that violence could break out. He says some 40,000 of them have already returned home and the rest will soon follow. Avec les élections présidentielles sénatoriales qui ont eu lieu au Nigeria, Bakari says within a week they counted more than 40,000 Nigerians. They deployed the military to protect them, he says, and provided them with water and food while they stayed in Cameroon. The elections ended well, so the Nigerians are going back to their country, says Bakari. But he notes they will be escorted by Cameroon's military to protect them from any surprise attacks by Boko Haram militants. Government spokeswoman Apollonian Zukong says after escorting the returnees to the border, Cameroon's military will hand them over to Nigerian authorities. We are working with the Nigerian authorities actually because they have a squad that protects. So they want us to report on any events that are taking place so that they make sure that they provide the necessary protection and the security services that are necessary. UNHCR has previously criticized Cameroon for refusing to accept Nigerian refugees in breach of its international obligations. But Cameroon says all Nigerians returning home are doing so of their free will. Bakari says Cameroon neither considered nor treated the recent arrivals as refugees, 
because officials often see mass movements across the border before elections. Nigerians in Makari who fled for fear of political violence say they thank God the re-election of President Muhammadu Buhari on February 23 was largely peaceful. 35-year-old Maiduguri businessman Nelson Chidi says he hopes this time around Buhari will ensure peace in Nigeria. His Excellency Buhari, we were crying for the past government that things are too hard. But since Buhari entered there, it has become worse. You can see Boko Haram. People are dying, innocent people are dying for the crime they have never committed. People are not living well. You see Nigerians, they are not having light. Why our neighboring countries have light? We produce fuel, but in our country, Nigeria, fuel is too scarce. Our people are suffering. It's because of bad government. Christian Anye who teaches at a private school in Kukawa, said he expects Buhari to tackle joblessness. My president, Buhari, give work to the youth. You cannot go to school after you don't have work. That's what is causing problem. I cannot accept you as a, my president or I call you my president. Why you are not satisfying me as a, as, as a citizen? Let her be calm. According to the latest UN figures, the country currently hosts more than 400,000 refugees mostly from Nigeria and the Central African Republic. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzaka in Makari, Northern Cameroon. The South African government's plan to roll out the digital terrestrial television to all South Africans is still on course. This was evident when Deputy Minister of Communication, Pinky Kekana, visited Reitz in the Free State Province. The objective is to help the country with a smooth journey from analog to digital broadcasting. Ishmael Modiba reports. A recipient of government said top box, a pensioner, Alina Masilela, whose house was visited by Deputy Minister of Communication, Pinkike Kana, and her entourage. Masilela says since the installation of the set-top box last year, she's able to watch more television channels. I received my set-top box last year. I'm able to watch my television. Deputy Minister of Communication, Pinkike Kana, says the government is still on course to ensure migration from analog to digital. Well, there are a few discrepancies we have picked up. One is around the issue of those that have received set boxes but they have not been installed. We are in touch with the USASA to make sure that they speed up the process. That's one. Two is that there are areas where the signal is a bit uh, weak. Centec is on, on site to make sure that they are able to deal with some of these things. But generally, uh, people are happy that they are able to view six SABC channels. Meanwhile, the mayor of Nketwana local municipality, Mamiki Mukwena, says the installation of the set-top boxes will help in creating jobs for the youth. 25 people have been identified, the young people who are going to be trained, so that if there are challenges in future, they are able to step in to assist. After several missed deadlines, South Africa is required to meet the deadline of June 2019, which is the deadline for all countries to complete the digital migration. I'm Ishmael Mudiba in Reeds. Abari, etise, mache, mingabu, baoni, kedu, mbote, ndemne, bonsoir. Join me, Richard Mwamba, for a music show on Channel Africa, 
called Africa in Song every Saturday and Sunday from 18 to 20 hours Central African time. Africa in Song, Saturday and Sunday from 18 to 20 hours Central African time. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. Kulitranjoe for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. Reporting for Channel Africa, I'm Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting-edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango, Channel Africa, Blantyre. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzeka. In Yaoundi. From an African perspective, listen to Channel African in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. Right, the time is now 17.29 Central African time. Amanda Machaka is in the building. She's here in the studio and she's ready for us to cross on over to the news desk so we can get our 17.30 Central African time news headlines. Thank you, Samara. Good evening. At least 35 people have been killed in fighting in Libya's capital, Tripoli. Military leader Khalifa Haftar pushed on with his assault on Tripoli on Monday, defying international calls for a ceasefire. Days into a battle that has left dozens dead. The Nigerian Air Force has disclosed that it killed 25 armed bandits and neutralized more than a dozen in Zamfara State in an operation fire for fire against armed bandits. And international rights group Human Rights Watch says it is worried about the Cameroonian government's continued muzzling of the dissenting voices, especially that of the opposition. HRW's concerns were primarily set around the recent burning of an assembly by the main opposition, Cameroon Renaissance Movement. Those were the stories making headlines.
The United Kingdom's envoy to the United Nations says she does not believe the resolution that created a no-fly zone in Libya in 2011 was a mistake. Ambassador Karen Pierce sat down exclusively with SABC News in New York to discuss her recent participation at a seminar hosted by the Department of International Relations in Pretoria. But the conversation later turned to developments in Libya where a rebel commander in the country's east is heading an offensive attack against the internationally recognized government in the capital. Tripoli, leading to fears of a return to a full-blown conflict just days ahead of a UN-brokered peace conference on April 14th. Show and Bryce Peace reports. Ambassador Pierce has returned to New York after a whirlwind visit to South Africa last week where she addressed a Derco seminar on the relevance of the Security Council in the current global climate. The most important thing to remember about the Security Council Uh, is that although people resent the veto to a certain extent, although the veto stops us making progress on issues like Syria, it is nevertheless uh, the price of the UN Security Council and the UN continuing in existence. I think the way round that, as it were, is to make sure that where some issues uh, can be dealt with in the Security Council, and I'd say Yemen uh, has been a good example of Security Council unity, uh, that we maximize that unity to the full. We pressed her on whether the veto was not simply and fundamentally unfair. I don't think it's fundamentally unfair in the sense of it was the price of the permanent five members agreeing to the Security Council and the UN back in 1945. Uh, Do we think there should be uh, self-imposed Uh, restraint on use of the veto. Uh, Yes, we as the United Kingdom do. Uh, We have signed up to the General Assembly Act uh, initiative and there's also the French initiative uh, on not using the veto in cases of genocide. Um, It's quite interesting that most of the time the veto is used, uh, it is used by countries not in their direct national security interest uh, but often to protect wider strategic interests. Uh, as you have seen uh, with the U.S. and Israel relationship, as we see now, uh, something like 12 vetoes since 2018 uh, on the Russians protecting uh, President Assad in Syria. London's envoy indicated that the two countries would work closely on issues of women, peace and security and women's mediation as a growing pillar of post-conflict resolution and peacebuilding. We asked Ambassador Pierce about her observations of South Africa's first four months in the Council. Although South Africa and Britain sometimes come at issues from a different perspective, uh, the one thing we have in common is that we both care very deeply about multilateralism and we both care about doing what we can to support the rules-based international system, which on the whole has kept the world safe and prosperous since 1945. Uh, So it's about finding ways we can cooperate within that framework and bearing in mind we have the same goal, we sometimes have different routes towards it. Turning to Libya, the UN has called for a humanitarian pause to the fighting as clashes between a renegade commander, General Khalifa Haftar, and militias loyal to Libya's internationally recognized government threatened to return the country to a full-blown conflict. I'm looking at this second or third hand, uh, as it were, uh, in my experience, which might be wrong in this case, but in my experience, when military people make these decisions, they make them because they see an opportunity. uh, And they 
set aside the diplomatic track uh, for, for that moment. I can't say if that's what's happened with General Haftar. Uh, it might be. Uh, I think it's important that the Security Council back the Secretary General. A UN-brokered national conference is due to start on April 14th and for now appears to be moving ahead, but will depend largely on General Haftar's next move. While these developments have again raised questions about the international community's role in the North African country, I asked Ambassador Pierce if Resolution 1973 of 2011 that created the now infamous no-fly zone in Libya was a mistake. No, I don't think that resolution was a, was a mistake because, as I say, it was a response to a particular set of circumstances around an imminent humanitarian catastrophe. There are always lessons to be learned from each conflict and each intervention, whether they ultimately end as expected or, or not. I think the point to make about 2011 in Libya is that the intervention was done with the uh, most altruistic of, of motives. It was to prevent an overwhelming uh, humanitarian catastrophe developing around Benghazi. Now, clearly, uh, that did not later pan out uh, as expected or even as foreseen. So, obviously, uh, we have to learn uh, a lot from the way things developed and our own inability uh, to forecast what might happen uh, and put in place measures that might enable us to deal with that uh, effectively. So yes, we have to learn lessons from these things. But the point I would like to stress is that standing by and doing nothing uh, in the face of an overwhelming humanitarian catastrophe is not a good option either. And as clashes rage near the capital Tripoli, conversations continue on how best the Security Council might assist the Secretary General's attempt to secure a temporary ceasefire in Libya. I'm Sherman Bryce-Pease. In New York. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. Kultanjoy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting edge and hard hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango, Channel Africa, Blantyre. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzaka. In Yawundi. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. in Lesotho. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa. More than 175 million children globally are not enrolled in primary school education. This is revealed in a new report by the United Nations Children's Fund, otherwise known as UNICEF. According to the report, the picture is much bleaker in low-income areas, with only one in five children enrolled in pre-primary education. For more on the findings of the report, here's UNICEF Eastern and Southern Africa Regional Chief of Communications, James Elder. I think the most startling thing with this is, like many reports, the sheer number. But at the same time, when we break it down to the individual child, to a little one-year-old, two-year-olds and three-year-olds, just how much of a difference a small amount of pre-primary education can make to them. So yes, the report does show that there's 175 million kids of that pre-primary age who aren't in pre-primary education. It shows tens of millions in our part of the world, Eastern and Southern Africa. It shows, unfortunately, that you know, in rich countries, Four in five kids are going to some sort of early childhood or pre-primary, and it's one in five. 
in Eastern and Southern Africa. Now, why is this important? It's important because the science in the last 10 years on pre-primary has become absolutely staggering, both from a science and an economic level. This really is the time to give a great foundation for kids. Basically, investing in that early childhood, your one, two, three, four-year-olds, is essentially about the most cost-effective way a society, a community, a country can make in terms of sustainable growth. It is the great equaliser. So that's why it's just so important. James, now, but what are some of the reasons behind this high number of children who are not enrolled in pre-primary education? Were you able to determine that? Yeah, I think a lot of it, as most things do, comes down to money, but it's also that mums and dads and governments around the world in the last 20 years really invested in primary school, and you see the benefit of that. You see incredibly high enrolment rates around the world. Many of your listeners will also know that countries have to work on the quality of that education. It's great to get kids in school, but we need to make sure they're learning. But certainly in the last two decades, countries invested a lot in primary school. But now, as I say, in that last 10 years, the science and the economic argument have become so powerful. And this is because brain, in terms of investing in pre-primary, it's because brain development. We know that most brain development occurs in 0 to 5-year-olds. We know that for every rand or dollar you invest in pre-primary, you will get five or six times back that every year over the course of a lifetime. So the numbers are staggering. But yes, now now that the science is so very clear, the economic argument is so very clear that this is a way to break future generations of poverty, then unfortunately it's no excuse anymore for people to, for governments to say, well, we don't have funds. You, funds have to be found. Otherwise, poverty will be repeated generation after generation. This is now the time to show that political and economic commitment because you know, investing in these one, two, three, four, five-year-olds does ultimately give us the greatest chance to break poverty in countries where we also know have big population booms right now. James, I'm glad you do touch on the benefits of early schooling because I wanted us to reflect on what exactly are children who are not enrolled early in pre-primary education missing out on in simple terms. Most simply, it's stimulus. And again, the research, it sounds very bland, but the research, the facts are really clear that those kids who do at least a year in pre-primary do much better when they get to primary school. They're much better prepared. So they're missing out on a chance to catch up, essentially, and they're being left behind at the earliest age. None of this is genetic. This is about giving kids that earliest chance. Now, there's also good news, for example, in South Africa. I know there is a a commitment to have universal pre-primary primary for at least one year for all kids across the country. So there are countries that are doing their best to make this happen, but there's also a lot that mums, dads, caregivers, go-go's, big sisters can do. When you've got a one, two, three or four-year-old, basic stimulation, playing with them, eye contact, singing songs, telling them stories, reading a book, playing numbers game, really simple interaction to do with the little, your, your littlest kids in your family has a huge impact on the way their neurons in their brain respond. So yes, we want them in good quality pre-primary facilities. But if that doesn't exist right now for someone in a community, there is so much that anyone can do. Read them a story. Tell them a story. Just engage them in simple things. Don't think that they are a baby and therefore you don't talk to them until they're four. Their brain is working faster than it will ever work again. And that stimulation and engagement through talking, singing, playing and good nutrition makes the world of difference. 
James, to conclude, um, what can be done to address this problem? Does the UNICEF report present any recommendations in terms of how, broadly speaking, we can address this problem? Yeah, it's a good question. I think one is we go back to it is financial. There is an international recommendation that 10% of a country's education budget go into pre-primary. I don't think there are any countries in the region that have hit 2%. But again, South Africa is certainly streets ahead and is, is making really, really big progress. So financial investment is really key. And again, people will say, well, but where does the money come from? Well, it comes potentially from other sectors because there are very few sectors, social sectors, that will be a bigger return to a community, to a family, to a country than this one. So money is one. And then the other, as I say, is just knowing what families can do, knowing how important it is to really engage and to play. You don't need any special toys or training to know how to sing songs and do basic number games with your littlest ones. And of course, that nutrition of mums and babies is key because that naught to five, the brain is working rapidly. And that was James Alder, Chief of Communications at the United Nations Children's Fund Office for East and Southern Africa on the line from Nairobi in Kenya to Jane Rabutata. The time is now 17.44 Central African time. A quick reminder that if you want to get in contact with us, we do have multiple platforms for you to do that. All you need to do is send us an email to info at channelafrica.co.za or send us a WhatsApp message to plus two seven seven six three zero zero three three two seven, or you can tweet us at Channel Africa one Also remember that our shortwave transmitters are currently down at the moment, but we'll keep you posted as soon as that situation has been rectified. We are still available on www.channelafrica.co.za Right now, though, let's uh, cross on over to the Money Desk and find out what is happening in the world of economics. Here is Tracy Boomgod. Thank you, Samora. South Africa's electricity parastate, or Eskom, has urged consumers to use electricity sparingly as the demand for power is expected to increase this week due to cold weather gripping parts of the country. Eskom says while it has done an extensive winter plan and reviewed its system, there is potential risks which could result in load shedding. The power utility has been able to avoid load shedding from the beginning of this month. South African President Cyril Ramaphosa has invited entrepreneurs in the country's wine industry to travel with him when he conducts state visits in other countries around the world. The president was addressing the farming community at the Bayer's Kloof wine farm in Stellenbosch in the Western Cape. Ramaphosa says travelling with a business delegation, like most heads of state do, will help facilitate exports from South Africa to other countries. I'd like to see you as wine producers coming along so that we can increase the branding of our wine in those countries so that we can uh, open up channels for you to be able to export. And so maybe the Wine Association can come along on some of these visits. When Xi Jinping travels around the world, President of China, usually travels with a big business delegation. Now, that's exactly what I want us to start doing as South Africa, as South African businesses. Millions of United States dollars in Liberia has not been accounted for. 
The missing money was collected via fuel levy for the maintenance and rehabilitation of roads in the country. An official document from Liberia's National Road Fund manager reveals that between July 2018 to February 2019, the Liberia Revenue Authority collected and deposited into government's operational accounts $18 million, with only $8 million going into the National Road Fund escrow account at the Central Bank of Liberia. The daughter of U.S. President Donald Trump says she's excited to travel to Africa to boost her work on her Women's Development Initiative. Ivanka Trump is scheduled to travel to Ethiopia and Cote d'Ivoire next week. In a statement, she says the mission is crucial for the peace and stability of nations and is achievable if they focus their efforts on job training, entrepreneurship and breaking down legal and cultural barriers. Ivanka's program helps women with financial support and legal support, among other things. Moody's rating agency has indicated that prospective auto tariffs by the United States would be a risk to global growth, hampering economic impetus in Germany, Japan and Korea. The world's second largest economy would be less affected because Chinese vehicle exports are already subjected to trade restrictions. According to Moody's, auto trade restrictions in an already decelerating global economy could cause a wide-ranging blow to business and consumer confidence globally. Taking a look at the financial indicators, the US dollar is trading at 358.63 Nigeria Naira, 10.42 Botswana Pula, at 99.98 Kenyan Shilling, and at 12.01 Zambian Kwacha. In BRICS currencies, one US dollar will cost you 3.86 Brazilian Hale, 65.14 Russian Ruble, 69.55 Indian Rupee, 6.72 Chinese Yuan, and at 14.11 South African Rand. The US dollar is also trading at 76 pence to the British pound and at 88 cents to the euro. In commodities, gold is trading at $1,299 and platinum at $902 per ounce. The price of Brent crude oil is $71.17 a barrel. For Channel Africa News, I'm Tracy Bumgard. And right now it's time for us to cross on over to the sports desk as Neto Chimani is standing by to let us know a little bit more about the Egyptian football side, Al-Hali, which switched up the mind games by changing the venue of Saturday's CAF Champions uh, League second leg quarterfinal to uh, tie against Mamelodi Sundowns. He's going to be letting us, a little bit, letting us in on a little bit more about that just now. Thank you, Samara, from the Sports Desk. A very good afternoon. Starting with football news. 
Egyptian football side Al-Akhli are reportedly using underhanded tactics by changing the venue of Saturday's CAF Champions League second leg quarterfinal tie against South African side Mamelodi Sundowns. The match was initially scheduled to be played at the Egyptian Army Stadium in Suez but has now been switched to the El Arab Stadium in Alexandria. The El Arab Stadium is 244 kilometers away from Cairo which contravenes CAF regulations which state match venues must be 200 kilometers or less away from the airport. However, CAF are said to have approved the change, which seems surprising given it is a breach of their own regulations. The laws also state that a venue has to be named 10 days before a knockout encounter. As such, Mamelodi Sundowns management have written a complaint to CAF. Despite the changes, Sundowns are in full control of the contest having won the first leg 5-0 last weekend and appeared to be the favourites to progress to the final four. On to boxing news. South Africa's longest-serving boxing promoter Rodney Berman says the proposed Independent Communication Authority of South Africa's ICASA's proposed amendment of the sports broadcasting rights is going to collapse boxing and sport in the country. Berman's company Golden Gloves Boxing Promotions is one of the 32 entities that have made submissions to ICASA on these proposed regulations. Like most sports federations in the country, they are vehemently opposed to this draft and Berman was clear today that this has got the potential to finish off boxing as a professional sport in the country. That it would be a tragedy for South African boxing. You know, let me start like this. I'm going to pinpoint certain the great Muhammad Ali, Sugar Boy Malinga, uh, Sugar Ray Leonard. Well, I mentioned Sugar Boy Malinga is one of them. Uh, Marvin Hagler, Mike Tyson, closer to home, Brian Mitchell, Viani Bungu, uh, welcome Nita, baby Jake McClulla. You know, those are household names who achieved fame, notoriety and financial stability. What they did with their money was a, another thing. But they earned a lot of money in their careers. Now, without the benefit of pay TV, none of those people that I've mentioned, great sportsmen, great people, would have, the world would never have known of them. On to athletics news. Ethiopian athletes were dominant in the third edition of the Great South Sudan Run that was held in hot conditions in Juba this past weekend. Yamazef Yualo of Ethiopia won a women's 10-kilometer race with Dabeski Kelai from Ethiopia and second Viola Chemos of Uganda in third. Kenyans Nancy Rotich and Josephine Jokuj finished in eighth and ninth respectively. Channel Africa's Francis Mutegi reports. In men's race, Mebravtu from Ethiopia was victorious and he was followed by his countryman, Derashe Kindie, while Tom Saleh of Eritrea completed the podium places. Kenyan Mako Yugi was sixth. The race was founded by Ayeyeshishim Teka and this year the theme was restoring peace, unity and love. After starting the Morocco Tour race on a low note, South Africa's team ProTouch are optimistic that they will finish the annual cycling event among the top. Heavy rains could not dampen the spirit of the South Africans as Rocco King make up for their sluggish start. He managed to put his side in the top 30 of stage 2 of the race. ProTouch's Songhez Ojim says they are happy with their performance so far.
Uh, the tour started uh, started very well for us, I must say. You know, we're trying to be represented in the breakaways and everything, so that has been working out well. Because the stages are very long, it's like 10 stages, so we try to go for stage win. But uh, yeah, we have to just look, you know, actually waiting to see when some guys are starting to get tired. Then I can try to go in the break, but uh, stage one went well for us, it was raining really cold 10 degrees uh, we're in front we went off i think it was about uh, 20 k's to go it was crosswind so it was not a bad start and then stage two also was okay a lot of flat wheels from us but uh, it was okay then stage three was a very very hard stage thank you for choosing channel africa for channel africa sport i'm neto and ito chamani This is Africa Digest. And that wraps up the first hour of Africa Digest right here on Channel Africa. From myself, Samora Magesi, producer Leander Maume, technical producer uh, Rivlino Ibrahim, and the rest of the Africa Digest team, thank you so much for listening.